By now, most people will have heard of generative AIs such as OpenAI's ChatGPT or Google's Bard and marveled at their abilities to generate high-quality prose on any manner of topics in any manner of styles. Some may have heard about deep learning systems such as Stable Diffusion and have been amazed at their abilities to create pictures and artwork on almost any subject seemingly from scratch. The rapid advance in the capabilities of these and other AI engines raises many questions ranging from student cheating to autonomous warfare to the potential menace of superintelligence. We should be asking tough questions about the potential downside of these technologies, and we should be exploring the many potential benefits of the technology across a broad range of industries. In this episode of W3B Talks, we're going to look at the question of how this technology will impact the creative arts. I'm Doug Heinzman, and the W3B Talks is an ongoing exploration of the impact of Web3 and blockchain technologies on business, government, and society. To help us explore this topic, we are joined by Lori Wolford. Lori is an entrepreneur, philanthropist, futurist, and an accomplished artist, and a blockchain preservationist. She's also the CEO of Mint and Mosaic, a one-stop solution for organizations, artists, and nonprofits offering archive services and a community marketplace where learning and purchasing merge through gamified social experiences. Welcome to the podcast, Lori. How are you today? Wonderful. Thank you, Douglas, for the introduction. Wonderful well, to be here. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us. This is a really fascinating topic, and it's only one of the many topics that is kind of uh, floating around right now with respect to AI, got us thinking about a lot of things. But it's a topic that I think has actually flown a little bit under the radar, somewhat because of, of some of the, the bigger AI kind of conversations out there. But the question about AI's impact on creativity and on creators, on artists, and the, the economy that currently supports them, I think is a really both fascinating question from a, from a business standpoint, but also from a, a cultural heritage standpoint. So... You know, you're you're in this business. You're an artist. You work with creators all the time. What what's your sense of the current move? What are people talking about? Is this a huge, unprecedented opportunity? Access to a new tool that's going to unlock all kinds of hitherto you know unrealized potential, or is this an existential threat, or somewhere something in between? That's a great question, Douglas. And, you know, I feel like this has really not only been lingering around for the past 10 years or so, but I feel like more recently, people have become more scared of the potential that it will unlock. Um, in my experience, you know, I've started an AI machine learning software company back in 2017 with a few other guys. One of them, one of the CTO was a data scientist from JPL NASA. And so, you know, we were building solutions where we were trying to help engage um, productivity and helping people enhance their daily lives through usability. And now that we're seeing a new generation of artwork and creativity just explode in front of us in a new generation of um, artists, generative artwork, AI artwork. It's this new application that people are, um, you know, starting to discover and explore new things with. And you have more recently, um, you know, a lot of legislation looking at this as a new turn of events in an evolution that could be potentially extremely harmful um, in many tragic occurrences. Um, I think in the past, we've seen um, technology gone wrong before, and we weren't really in a position where we could use the situation and learn from it, obviously. I think um, AI... Luckily, we're ahead of the curve where we have the ability to actually do something about it, establish regulations and use it as a tool base and a toolbox full of opportunity. Um, and along the way, creating regulations so that it's used responsibly in you know avenues from artwork to warfare to strategic intelligence, artificial intelligence and um, like super intelligence. Um, there's so many different things and topics that I'm super excited to dive in with you, but I feel like this is definitely um, something that we need to address. And I feel like it's been 
way too much under the radar. And now it's starting to just, everybody's talking about chat GBT and now it's a thing. And now everybody's generating their own artwork and um, we're, we're into a new, new evolution. So I'm very excited. Okay. So let's, uh, let's kind of dig down into the, the creator part of this equation. And as, as you point out, there has been a lot of news out there earlier on this year, uh, DJ David uh, Guteta, he, he took, you know, he had AI create this Eminem song that was really quite amazing. He did it in a matter of hours and he put it on one of his shows and kind of the crowd went wild that there's, you know, new Eminem content. And of course, there was that that quite celebrated case of a duet between Drake and The Weeknd that uh, that went viral and, and was actually a pretty good song. And a lot of people really liked it and it was getting a lot of playtime. And of course, it wasn't Drake, and it wasn't The Weeknd, and it wasn't their song, and it wasn't their voices. It was an AI engine. So we're, we're seeing more and more of these these examples out there. And you know, from the point of view of the creator community, is this is this some new strange form of of plagiarism, or is this a new art form? I feel like it it definitely shifts the narrative of who the artist is in this situation. Um, the sound engineers became the artist and not the actual artist, <laughs> the artist. And so I do feel like there is definitely some time that people are generating income from previous names and using their names to really create a magnitude of opportunity. Economically, that isn't quite honest and true. Obviously, when you're dealing with artwork in general, there's this has been existed for you know eons. And having actual record of who created a song, where it came from, the origins that allow us to really go full circle about the history and the meaning of a song, for instance, like like the one you just spoke about, I think things like this could be prevented. And the fact that we have to learn the hard way about how, <laughs> how to make this not happen again, how do we authenticate our artists? And creatively speaking, um, we don't want to live in the world where everything is a creative commons because that really hinders the growth and potential of our artists exponentially. Um, and you know, when we're looking at different use cases of AI, music is just one of them. We have, um, I was just on the phone talking with, um, a very prominent, um, sound engineer that his job is to go through all these movies, all these TV shows, all these scripts and define the tune and the feeling and to really empower the movement and the messaging of the movie and apply music to it. And he essentially wanted to recreate himself so that he didn't have to do his job. So he could just have AI really match the empathy scoring to each individual song per each item. And so that was something that I found to be really, um, you know, a proper use case where it would save him hours. And he, he would just essentially train the AI to compile music that he would normally associate with certain situations. So you've just, so you've just touched on quite a few different topics, and I'd like to unpack them uh, one at a time, but maybe in reverse order. So that, that the, let's start with the question that you were just touching on, that this is a tool. We have lots and lots of experiences adopting new kinds of technologies that have expanded the ranges of our creativity or made our creativity more efficient, ranging from pedestrian things like spell checkers in word processors to, in the music industry, the introduction of any number of different kinds of new instruments, uh, things like, you know, the Moog synthesizer was quite revolutionary in its time and quickly found its way into, you know, popular music and provided new auditory experiences that most of us had never experienced before that innovation. And, um, and, you know, the example that you were just using about a film editor uh, finding ways of, of analyzing content that uh, improves productivity. I think it was back in 2016, uh, IBM Watson actually worked with 20th Century Fox on the horror movie Morgan. And it went through and basically watched the movie and then did a big analysis and created a trailer of mm -hmm. all the right, you know, kind of scenes that had all the right emotional context and all the right kind of color matching and that flowed a certain narrative without giving away the plot line. And they were able to render in a number of hours work that would have taken them weeks to do. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that was, they weren't necessarily affecting 
the kind of the creative content of the the movie itself and all and, and pretending to invent something, but this is a tool that they were using to augment their their productivity. And I think that there are lots of cases with like that. But then the near cousin to that is what we just saw happen in, in the United States with the ad from the Republican Party that was portraying this apocalyptic world that, you know, if you reelect the president, that bad things are going to happen. But the entire ad was completely created with AI. None of the images and none of the sounds were factual in any sort of way. They weren't even edited. They were just invented by artificial intelligence. So how do we how do we wrestle with this duality that there's some very powerful tools that can help productivity and yet can be used in ways that arguably have a whole bunch of ethical challenges around them? Yeah, that's a great question. And I feel like this is so relevant in today's world where people um are really using imagery more than contextual items. And, you know, even from marketing, advertising, um, everybody wants a visual component. And so when you're trying to devalue certain agendas with your own, oftentimes it ends up in photographs, photojournalism, video, things like that. So especially in the political space, I feel like this is um, something that we're going to see more and more of, especially when we're looking at generative art, where it's so easy to manipulate items. And there's a few platforms out there. I know Capture was one of them, um, the guys from USC and the Showa Foundation, they're using blockchain technology to really dive into the the prolific amount of integrity that it takes to be honest and to capture that with our heritage is something that should kind of remain sacred. And one way that we kind of facilitate that is with blockchain and capture did that well with a lot of Holocaust survivors and victims. And then of other parts of the world, they're having people completely deny the fact that the Holocaust existed. So at the same time, you just have to weigh those um, those trusted sources um, of information, obviously. And AI doesn't really help facilitate a more honest approach to um, disseminating information. Um, but, you know, like, you know, a lot of art is already generative and it's becoming more and more easy to enhance things, especially when we're looking from an artist standpoint. Um when you come, when you look at artwork, say in nature, and this is a good example, I think um, the difference between like a real artist and what they're capturing versus something that can be hugely manipulated is when you're looking at a landscape, um, say in the coral reefs, and it's this beautiful um, Great Barrier Reef, um, but it might not be accurate to um, the actual state of the coral reefs. So you might be looking at one beautiful landscape that's there just to make people feel good. And then the reality of it is that it's not so pretty. And it, it really, the most subtle differences can create such a mind-blowing effect. Or even um, if you take photographs or video stills of um, political campaigns and you plug in really pretty faces on one political candidate, you know, it really shifts the subtle narrative. And I think the scariest part is that with AI, it's it's very subtle and it's very dynamic. And a lot of these emerging technologies, it's going to be harder and harder to tell the difference between what is real and what is not. And, and it doesn't really matter what you facilitate with those images um, because people are going to perceive it the way that they do. So I find that this is not just threatening and political standpoint, but also in things like nature, where people are endorsing certain things that aren't actually consistent to what we're looking at. Yeah. So we've, 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 we've had forever, well, for a very long time, the idea of selective sampling, right? So depending on what narrative you want to push, using your example of the Barry Great Barrier Reef, you know, you could take one photograph from one completely isolated space that is absolutely horrible and portray it as being representative of the entire thing, or the opposite, as you were suggesting, an incredibly lush and beautiful part of the reef that also is not illustrative of the entire entirety of the entire reef. And of course, the, that analog works in any number of different contexts. Mm -hmm. So that there's selective sampling, but we've also have editing and airbrushing, right? That, of course, you know, the models that you see in magazines or various different products and food and whatever. It's all been kind of touched up and beautified. So we've always, you know, had those sorts of tools at our disposal. They're getting better and better and better. 
is, do you think AI is just the next step, natural progressive extension, or do you think there is some sort of really distinctive boundary condition, an inflection point between the selective sampling and the editing and enhancement that we've done in the past and AI's ability to generate very convincing images and narratives from whole cloth. Yeah, I find like this has been an issue that we've been facing, you know, since, um, you know, I guess since the different wars too, I guess you can consider that like the Cold War or even in World War II, where a large mass of um, our artwork and information was really disseminated based that was more focused on self-interest and not being on, um, you know, whether if it's literature or photographs, a lot of these images can be selectively paired with a different story. And that's something that's been happening forever. And that's the definition of, um, you know, fascism and wartime propaganda. So when you, when you start diving a little bit deeper and uncovering um, a lot of the threats that were, I see as the scariest part is the inability to detect AI. And when we're learning about, you know, machine learning, um, strategic in, intelligence and where these objectives with AI are becoming motivated and with self-interest. Um, and with prolonged exposure to deep machine consciousness with segmented amounts of self-interest that you'll see, um, whether if it's an ad for a marketing company or if it's a presidential campaign, these machines hold literary power in influence. And without, um, you know, with the ability to openly learn and consume and explore information and always improving, it really expands upon um, the limiting uh, capabilities of humans and how we fall very short behind, not so much in the intelligence, but in the speed, because um, these machines are just exponentially faster. They can compound information at such a high volume where in cases, it can be helpful because they have such a, a faster response time. And um, having that response time can actually save people. They, it can save people's lives or the ability to make a decision on the fly with gather, gathered information is also can be you know helpful or, you know, completely decimate an entire civilization. And so you have these extreme polarities where it could really go both ways. Um but I feel like our lives are already deeply embedded, like you said, um, you know, with just filters alone, we've become so conditioned and, um, you know, whether if it's marketing or bias agendas that will eventually become deployed and deeply embedded psychologically, um, our perceptions won't be able to tell the difference. And so I feel like we just have to be very careful and consider the, the scariest part that we don't even know the future capabilities. Um, and the potential to mitigate risk, you know, is going to be much harder when we don't even know the possible extent of that existence. Yeah, just while, while we're talking about this, that I've been kind of scared, even terrified of this idea that, that currently there is a, a, you know, some finite amount of the population that has the, the background and the, the critical thinking skills to differentiate fact from fiction in a lot of narratives that are running around out there. And as AI can create these incredibly convincing images and narratives combined with social media algorithmic optimization of targeting, that's the, the ability to discriminate fact and fiction and understand when you're being manipulated by someone with an agenda will get increasingly marginal. And the, the, the scary thing is that more and more people will be um, influenced in, in these sort of ways and manipulated in these sort of ways. But the other side of that, of course, is that, that even those people that are highly skeptical and, and have the skills to scrutinize are going to start to be questioning what is actually truth, right? So... And I think for society to function, we all need kind of some sort of common understanding of, of what facts are. And as, as we all start to question all facts, because we may be manipulated and may be convincing forgery, uh, that that's kind of a terrifying thought. But anyway, that's a bit of a digression. Uh, <laughs> I, I wanted to come back to this, this kind of question about the nature of creativity. Uh, 
Getty Images has sued Stable Diffusion for a huge amount of money, up to $150,000 for each infringed work. And they've got about 15,000 images. So basically what, what, what Stable Diffusion did, this is the company that you can kind of put in a text prompt that says, I want to see a picture of a spaceman riding on a horse. And it creates mm-hmm. this incredibly realistic photograph or, or artistic rendi- uh, rendition of exactly what you've asked for. And it, it does this because it's sampled just vast, vast, vast amounts of, of images and, and ingested them and understands what they all are so that it can take those prompts and be creative. But in fact, you're diffusing any number of different Im- images and kind of merging them into this completely new construct. And uh, Getty Images is, is, is suing for IP infringement. But it begs a really interesting question because, you know, artists themselves uh, are who they are and have the skill that they have and are creating what they do because they have life experiences, because they've been exposed to other art. They have ingested huge amounts of creative input from other creators, synthesized that, and either have emulated or have created a derivative or fusion style. So why is why is a machine doing this any different than a human doing this? Are, are they is there something distinctive about these two cases? I guess you could say there is a major difference between humans ingesting artwork and AI doing that. Um, And this is more of a sense of ownership over um, a lot of key components of creativity is in the process. And, um, you know, like with any artwork or any end result of AI, we only see the end result. We don't see how that was um, compiled. And so the difference is, is, you know, a lot of these artists if we don't use that set of tools that encompass this, the sense of enlightenment, um, you can see that kind of slowly depreciate because the, the algorithms that are behind AI, they don't really possess that quality of a step-by-step, how did we get here kind of mentality. As with an artist, you could free think, um, you know, consider their background, their ethnics, their heritage, everything is compiled. Um, uh, well, well, wait a second. Let me, let me, let me push back on that a little bit because you're, you're quite right. Uh, a lot of most AI engines are black boxes. They've just trained on large data sets and, you know, what they do is kind of voodoo under the covers. <laughs> but but people are kind of like that too. I mean, if, you know, you could go to the AI engine and say, well, you know, it likely got this influence because it consumed this volume and it made these kinds of assumptions. You can kind of go back and craft a narrative, even if you can't mm-hmm. go back and, you know, find the, you know, the, the, programmable logic that that leads yeah. there but the same is true of humans right we can go back and say well because they lived for three months in paris and they hung out at the at the musée d'orsay or or whatever they got exposed to these kinds of influences and that influenced their choice of color palette or motif or whatever mm-hmm. but 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 humans are black boxes too Right. I mean, you can't go back and see the programmatic why they put this paint stroke on and in this color and in this configuration. Yeah. Um, human interactions um, have a major influence in their artwork, you know, and artists like myself, um, oftentimes I get visions and we use art as an outlook of reflection and to further advance innovation, collaborations like creativity flowing um, and channeling of ideas that stream through because of our cultural backgrounds or our daily experiences. But humans more or less are a bridge of communication between countries and cultures and allows for open conversation between people that may or may not be, um, you know, connected. And also I feel like artwork in general is something that is immensely healing. So the very practice, um, the very practice of creating artwork, whether if it's media or it's painting on canvas, it could really create a sense of flow that um, is beneficial to humanity in general. So even if your artwork isn't good, um, you might be one of the happiest artists on the planet because you get to paint all day. (laughs) Or if you're a songwriter, singwriter, you know, if you're writing poems all day, you might just be a nicer person. If your poems suck, it doesn't matter. The fact that you're, you're facilitating and using that muscle in your brain 
that um, allows you more openness and um, to really enjoy and immerse yourself organically. Whereas the point of a machine learning algorithm to create artwork is more monetary and it's more economical. It's not, you know, when you're typing in a sentence, it's not making you feel good. It's entertaining, if anything. And um, there is monetary outcome if you were to sell that. And so it shifts the narrative of um, the purpose of artwork to make people feel good, to actually heal um, and induce states of flow, which people have been proven to recover from things of high trauma, like PTSD, things like that. Um, and then there's this other element to it where, yeah, it's great to you know feel good and create things that are universally good that keep people connected, um, but also being able to monetize it. Um, so I think people that are more generative artists, I think, are more motivated differently to things that are external. So I will grant you that that art has this cathartic, emotional healing, you know, these attributes that provide value to the artist, right? That, that it's a form of expression. It helps them deal with emotional trauma. It you know, helps them express joy and happiness. Uh, the other side of that, of course, is that, that some art, even most art, is designed to inspire other people, right? It's designed to yeah. allow other people to have an emotional response or to provoke a certain line of inquiry or questioning or, or thinking. And so it has this, this other purpose uh, in the world that, you know, it's, it's not just for the selfishness of the, of the artist. Most artists are extraordinarily generous people for sharing their psyche and their perspective with the larger world. So I will grant you that AI engines, uh, you know, at least we don't think they can, you know, feel happiness or any such thing. And we're not terribly worried about them, you know, dealing with their internal emotional tra tra tragedy. But the, the, I, I am kind of curious to see what happens as, as AI engines start to have emergent behaviors. Uh, just an example in the in the book uh, the age of ai by kissinger et al they they refer to the case of uh, the google alpha chess engine alphago mm -hmm. chess alpha yeah it was alpha anyway chess engine and instead of telling it how to play chess it basically just gave it the basic set of rules and it said it didn't tell it any strategies it just said play a lot of chess and so it played vast 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 yeah. numbers of chess <laughs> But one of the most interesting things that came out of it was that it started to exhibit completely novel strategies, not strategies that it had imitated or learned or had sampled from any other great players because it, it hadn't studied anyone else's games. It had just played against itself over and over again. It, it invented completely novel strategies uh, and approaches that humans had never had never imagined. And this was a completely emergent and arguably very creative process that was novel. So, you know, here we have this potential. We start to see the very first inklings, the first sparks, the first seeds of a new way of looking at AI as, a, as an authentically creative tool, not just a derivative diffusion sort of tool. So is that uh, is that a is that a completely new you know addition to the the landscape if we have people who are appreciating art and are being provoked by the I don't know quote thinking unquote of an AI engine? Yeah, you know, I find that to be incredibly fascinating to the capabilities when you assign and you prompt AI to do a certain task and then it evolves into something. Um, those especially when we're dealing in the games of chess, there's a lot of similarities between the games of chess and like war strategy, you know, strategic intelligence becomes a thing and it's very dynamic and emergent. And that's why we're struggling with such challenges because the magnitude um, that we will see in the future evolve. And in that same book too, I believe um, the reason why we're able to adapt to things like this is because it has such a strong use case for immense amounts of language and organization. And once we hand those keys over to make 
to, to a machine that's fully capable of making decisions in a sentient like way that it allows for human like choices to evolve our species creatively and, uh, you know, authentically as artists. Um, it's really difficult to grasp the capabilities and long-term um, issues that are basically um, repercussions and consequences. Um, every technology has a consequence and the long-term that we're really facing um, is when we're allowing these these tools to not only learn and discover our language, which is our primary tool that we have, but we're also expanding on the intimacy and the strategies of relationships. And um, in, you know, in that same book, The Age of AI, um, the same machine where you start seeing these intimate relationships form because of strategy and because of the literacy, um, you know, you could have one of your kids, for instance, have you know, an AI teddy bear, and that will be your kid's best friend. But at the same time, you're looking at these machines and AI in general, when it has that capability of fully merging um, expression, you know, the same best friend to your kid is also someone who's telling you how to dive into new ways of war strategies and discovering new ways to play and win chess every single time. You, these machines can also win wars. They can also teach your kids new things and whatever that may be, may, you know, some, sometimes we don't want to discover some things. <laughs> well, it's but, a, I, I'm, I'm, heart, I'm heartened to, to learn that our reading lists overlap. Uh, but that it, so let's go, let's go back to this question because I, th I think it kind of flows out of this conversation that is there any objective difference between art that is either generated or, or authentically created by AI and art that is generated, created by humans? I, I don't believe, I mean, I guess we all have an element of um, self-interest. You know, if you look at, you know, World War II, um, in different wars, they use artwork. That was the primary source of um, propaganda, right? You have disseminating um, self-interest of Nazi Germany, and then you have different mediums of which that catapulted into a huge monumental movement that allowed for cultural erasure. So you have, a, oh yeah, it's just artwork, but it's very targeted self-interest artwork that is very subtle to the human conscious. And with enough exposure over long term, you will have generational effects that we will not be able to detect. Um, and so when we're looking at this from a very high level, artwork in general has many different use cases also. So if you're looking, you know, to, you know, document things, artwork is essential because it's photojournalism. Um, but at the same time, a lot of the artwork, say I was just in Versailles in France and all the glorious paintings and all the walls, they're all somebody's political agendas. They're, it's all propaganda to some extent. Well, so and, you're, well, you're touching on, I think, a really important part of the story, which is the story, the you know, when, when I go into an art gallery and I'm kind of looking at, at paintings, half of my engagement, maybe even more in my particular case, half more than half my engagement with that piece of art mm -hmm. is, is the placard that describes, you know, the artist and, and their backstory and where they were at and how, you know, where this piece fit into their, you know, the body of their lifetime work. And what influences and what schools they were part of and who they apprenticed to. The mm -hmm. story is, for, for me at least, is, is a big part of the art. Um, you know, I've gone, I spent many hours in the MoMA and the Guggenheim in New York. Mm -hmm. And I'll be perfectly candid. As much as I'm a huge art lover, there is a tremendous amount of art that visually I have trouble relating to and interacting with because I'm just not educated enough or smart enough and a lot of stuff I don't get, right? I don't understand it. Mm -hmm. But then notwithstanding, I can, I, I find the backstory of, of, you know, why did Jason Pollock do that, right? Uh, to be very interesting, right? That for me becomes part of the story. So as we kind of think about this art landscape and whether it's a visual art or an auditory art or a a moving picture art is 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 part of that backstory a big part of the story 
that if we think of art, it's not just the thing we're looking to or listening to, but it's it who the artist is, who the the band or the singer is, what their mm-hmm. story is, this broader context. And so let's start with that question. Yeah, no, of course. And and this is where it's really incredible to see the transition from real traditional artists because that's, you know, a lot of the artists that I work with daily, they are real artists. They don't even know. I just showed one of them what chat GPT was. He's like, what? <laughs> and it's interesting to see this reaction with people. They don't want to even touch their computers. Like they don't want to do anything online. They want to paint. And the story behind that is just so magical. One of my artists, for instance, he grew up in, um, in Russia behind the Iron Curtain. And so all of his fantastic paintings, obviously they take years and years. And (laughs) he is a child prodigy like and all of his paintings are so fantasy like because growing up with his childhood, he didn't have that fantasy. He didn't have that's the only thing you could really dream up and live through. But if his childhood and his story didn't reflect that, I don't think people could really understand the artist. And this is a strong, you know, opportunity for people to learn from artists. And like I said, it's not the artwork that's rare because we can generate just about anything. It's the artist and what they have to teach the world because some of the most brilliant people in the world are artists and they have a lot more to share than a visual piece or a video or anything. Their dynamic approach to absorbing information reiterating that sense of communication um, and visionary approach to just about life and, and everything that they, they express is something that cannot be replicated. And so when we're evolving at such a high rate, um, you know, an, an extent, existential amount of artwork is being pushed into the markets and it's really hard to really differentiate between what is real, what is not. And having that story, um, that resonates with people is so much more powerful and moving because I feel that is what connects people. It's not just, Oh, this is pretty. This is nice. You know, this artist resonates with me. The story here is like mind blowing. It's just an incredible opportunity to showcase these artists. But I do find that AI to be helpful in one of the artists that I told you when I showed him chat GPT, he had no idea, but a lot of the artists, um, uh, English is not their first language. And so they struggle to actually tell their story um, in a way where they use the whole vocabulary of English or Russian or Spanish. And so it allows them to really open up more freely, knowing that they're not going to be restricted by their language barrier. Well, I mean, p- part of the wonderful thing about art is that there's not a lot of strict definitions about what art is. Right. Yeah. You just you just asked this really interesting question about differentiating about what is art and what is not art. Right. As whenever I go and visit, you know, the MoMA, I'm asking that question all the time. Right. I mean, right. is this art? Right. The, <laughs> the very first time I visited the uh, well, I mean, the first time I visited, but I, vi- I visited the, the National Gallery of Canada and they had just bought uh, Voice of Fire, which, you know, for some ridiculous number of millions of dollars. And I I walked in to look at it and it's a big white panel with a big red stripe down the middle. Mm-hmm. And I was, you know, I'm kind of saying, you know, is that art? Right. I mean, I could have done that. No, I didn't do that. If I had done it, I could have sold it to the national gallery for $15 million, mm-hmm. but, but is it art? Right. So, and we've always had this question and art is in the eye of the beholder. And, mm-hmm. and when a gorilla, you know, draws a painting, is that art? Well, sure. So, you know, I, I, I think it's reasonable to paint a pretty broad brush and say that, in fact, a lot of the stuff that is being generated by AI is art. The kind of question I was going after was that, that especially as we have more and more of this digital technology and we have this ability to ledger these things and not just the artist and their backstory and the school and their collaborators, but even the provenance story of a piece mm-hmm. of art can be part of the story of the art. Mm-hmm. Do you do you think that that as we move forward, that increasingly we're going to be concentrating on that that extra dimensionality of art to tell this broader story of the context of the thing that we're listening to or looking at, and that that that's going to be part of the big differentiation between human created art and AI created art. 
Yeah, I, I do believe that full force. And I, I'm a huge fan of keeping things organized in a ledger where everything is immutable and every transaction, um, you know, is decentralized. Everything is put together in a way where it's trustless, essentially. And I believe, especially in the uh, new era of deep learning and AI, uh, there's going to be more deep fakes and deeply false information that despite of our previous um, experiences or, oh, I do know this artist, you know, it's like you have to really dive in on the mechanics of where origins actually come from, especially when you're dealing with high volume cultural heritage preservation. Um, I've been in museums and I'm like, what am I looking at? And I'm like in this indigenous, I was in Switzerland and I was looking at this entire floor of this beautiful um, museum, but it's all indigenous heirloom, indigenous um, artifacts. And I'm like, what happened to the indigenous? They killed them all. And and now they're in a museum. Like, oh my gosh, that's terrifying. Well, that's actually actually a really, really good point because art (laughs) doesn't just tell an artist's story. It tells a culture's story. And that becomes part of this broader context. So I'm totally on board with you on that. The um, one thing I've been kind of a little concerned about is that, you know, I totally get this idea that that generative engines like ChatGPT are potentially huge boons to productivity, right? That mm-hmm. we can create outlines and organize ideas and, and you know, cr- generate prose in the case, or with a diffusion engine generate artwork incredibly quickly that we can put out there and impact other people or, or generate, uh, you know, money from you can make a living off of this. There's lots of people that are prompt specialists that are making their living, you know, creating artwork for websites using these tools and they do it very, very efficiently. But if these engines are as smart as they are, and I use smart within air quotes, Mm-hmm. Then, uh, and they're and they're that they're that smart because they have ingested tremendous amounts of content from which they derive their their appearance of intelligence. What happens when more and more of that content is in fact generated by those engines that they start to become completely self-referential? That if the content they're consuming to learn is content that they themselves have have created and are thus learning to create new stuff, which then becomes the fodder for their creativity. Don't we just kind of degrade everything into a a tasteless mess? Yeah, you know, I think that over the course of years, we're going to see it all slowly merge together, right? And um, digital scarcity will become, you know, not so scarce. I think the the human <laughs> is going to be more of the rare part because of our lack of obviously AI is used as a major accelerator for information. So the ability to, to compound information and knowledge is so much larger and at such an exponential rate than the human mind. Um, I I do see that our future is becoming more and more integrated as far as productivity and a lot of these things that are getting. Um, you know, pushed into market are far beyond mechanical. So you have these simple applications for productivity where you have like spell check, for instance. Um, that's a great tool. Do we need it to exponentially create large volumes so that it's reframing our whole sentence every time we use it? No, that's not necessary. Um, but I do feel like there's an incredible source of information if we use it accurately um, and not to overuse that either because the more that we use that, the less authentic that it gets, um, you know, and you don't need that much information for certain tasks. So some people tend to overdo it and then it changes their entire narrative. Um, I well, don't know. Well, a lack of information is probably an even bigger uh, danger than having too much information. But yeah. So, well, it's sticking on the topic of, uh, of, of economics. One of the questions that's kind of floating out there, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal not too long ago about this, asking this really interesting question that says that if these AI engines are coming along and they're dramatically increasing productivity and in doing so, lowering the barrier to 
creativity, right? That more people can write the great American novel, right? More people can generate stuff more quickly because it takes less work and the quality of output is relatively competitive compared to if they didn't have access to these tools. By the way, the same is true of word processors, right? We can generate mm -hmm. books much more quickly with word processors and spell checkers and the like. But that as, as AI starts to create more of our advertisements and edit more of our movies and, you know, generate more and more of the, the text that's out there, do we risk eroding the economy that supports the creative arts and pulling funds out of the, the, the small funds that are there, uh, that are already there, pulling those funds out of that marketplace such that it becomes inc increasingly difficult for artists to actually make a living being artists. Yeah, I do see that the main frame of what we've been looking at over the course of the past, you know, 10, 15 years with the eons of Facebook and then um, Instagram, you have these large, um, you know, intermediaries and they're kind of subjective for the artists where they're taking away from what is actually the artwork and providing it for data sets for other purposes. And so this hinders the growth and the availability of the artists to actually have an exposure to an economic model that fits. And so we're dealing with these subsets of data that, you know, are being translated for other purposes. These artists don't really get a share of that. They may use Instagram and sell, you know, a few paintings, but it's not even remotely close to um, the revenues that are generated from these alternative sources from the large platforms. Um, so I, I do see in the onset of technology, how people are growing into these new roles in society where artists can actually have a, a seat at the table and create more and actually own their data. And obviously with blockchain. Um, but I feel like these barriers to entry are, um, you know, they're great for creativity. Um, but the consequences I do feel um, like enhanced creativity, for instance, um, you know, a lot of people don't have to use all their creativity as much as they used to if they're a generative artist. Um, but the difference is, I think, is more than just code or hardware that we're talking about to build these other technologies, for instance. Um, AI really far exceeds mechanical ranges, too. And I feel like we're a lot of the times we're not using that appropriately. We're using the technology to hinder creativity where we could exponentially open the door to new forms of technology. Like what we're doing with Mosaic is, is you know, creating a sanctuary-like place where artists are going to be dominating and it's built around the need of the artist. Not, oh, you can fit your artwork onto the social media platform. It's not really fine-tuned for that. It was never designed for that. I'm really torn by this question because, you know, the, the automobiles put the handsome cab drivers out of work. Electrification put the gas lighters out of work. Automated typesetting put the typesetters out of work. And at some mm -hmm. point in the not-too-distant future, the automation of transportation will put long-haul truck drivers out of work. And yet, you know, those people found other interesting things to do that, you know, contributed more value to society than, than the role that they played before that some technology emerged. In, in the creative arts, uh, whether we like it or not, an awful lot of the economic viability of the creative arts are in, you know, near commercial applications, right? They're in in graphic designs for websites and and you know artists for for magazines or advertisements or whatever people writing jingles etc if if these tools intersect those marketplaces and just the way that those other technologies i mentioned impacted the incumbency um that a lot of those funds aren't going to be available to the people who did them even think of animation artists Right. I mean, computer rendering is doing an awful lot of the work that that animators used to do um, in, you know, the heyday of, of Disney. And but we can create more content of higher quality, more cost of cost effectively and tell more stories because of the technology. So if we're taking those funds out of those marketplaces, but the result is that we're getting more cost effective higher quality, more interesting product in the marketplace in doing so. Is that a, is that a bad thing? I don't see it necessarily being a bad thing. I see it being more of a competitive thing. Um, because I, the only reason I would 
I would definitely jump on board with what they're doing back when I was in college and I started my marketing company, you know, doing different marketing campaigns, for instance, is part of a design process and a full elaborate campaign, you know, can take months to execute on and developing messaging, for instance, branding, um, you know, a large part of what we do now is fully automated. I think marketing now, especially, has become just a prompting um, experience and then an automation process. Everything is automated. Even platforms like Dolly are now being used to integrate brand recognition, full brand development with messaging tools that can shape any marketing campaign almost instantly, which is terrifying um, because it used to take me, you know, hundreds of hours and thousands of dollars in. It's credible to use Dolly and ChatGPT for marketing because now it's almost essential and free. So the competitive edge is really, you know, it's it's going to a place where it's it's been unlike 10 years ago. It, I wouldn't kill for these tools. But at the same time, there's long-term effects of using these tools. You know, it's like, um, I, like for instance, it would be exhausting to spend hours and hours and hours. But when you're, when you're charging clients a certain amount of money, to do certain tasks that um, I've seen marketing companies, they still charge that amount of money, but they're still automating. And um, they're basically prompting platforms to really take control over their messaging. You make, and that's, a, you make a really, really interesting point because, you know, the technology is lowering the cost and the barrier to entry. Mm -hmm. um, and it's allowing people like you to in fact be more creative and to express that creativity to a larger audience more efficiently and effectively. Mm -hmm. So, you know, on the one hand, you know, you, you may, the technology may be eroding the creativity of the people that were formerly occupying that economic niche, but at the same time, it's liberating the creativity and people that are leveraging the technology to do things that they couldn't do before on their own. Yeah, but it also is creating an element of, of shifting a narrative. I've, you know, experienced quite a few things where it evolves into something else with certain prompts and prompt engineering is a whole nother beast that, you know, le learning to, you know, master that language in a way where that language is becoming something where you're very intimate with a brand or with a campaign that you're doing and you really want it to resonate, but certain things, um, you know, say in, in this experience of doing a campaign, for instance, I think that it's becoming more transcendental to human capacity. Um, and we're trying to steer away from this automated sense, but it's harder and harder to detect what is more authentic human because you could put such emphasis in chat GPT and it's evolving in such an emergent way where you could be a marketing company and make a killing and not even actually have to be creative or have to come up with a, a certain concept. You can create one in minutes. So do you think we're going to end up in a world where we have a, an arms race, you know, kind of like the way that we had the arms race between the people writing computer viruses and the people writing antivirus software that we are going to be, you know, having AI engines whose mission it is, is to detect the use of AI engines. I think um, AI is going to be something that will be inevitable if you're looking to create a sense of ownership over something that's different. But when you're looking to create barriers of entry for infiltrations of technology like an AI, I think that's something that's a little bit more in depth. And when you're looking at different use cases, whether, you know, if it's institutional or organizational they will always come through with more technology as it builds upon previous sets. So like in my previous company, for instance, not the marketing company, but um, in Liquid, AI machine learning platform that used AI to predict catastrophic failures. Totally normal. It wasn't AI versus AI, but this was a solution that it essentially helped DevOps engineers to manually find and fix the issue. And that would normally cost hours and millions of dollars if you were dealing with a large scale enterprise, like an airline or something where their systems went down and, you know, or it could be millions of lives on the line. Um, but when you're involving, you know, another element where it's not just, you know, something was glitching the system, it's an actual attack. It's a cyber attack with AI. Um, 
you know, AI does have the advantage to bring awareness to these problems before tragedy occurs. And using this type of concern, I think um, that AI will, in fact, attack or you will have a cyber experience where you have things that will erode the entire system. Um, so I do, I do believe that strategic intelligence and artificial intelligence will become more complicated and much more subtle. And we have to determine a certain level of deterrence for institutions or countries, for instance, like military strategies, for instance. Um, I'm sure they will either enhance their positions, of course, but when you have AI, that's not just helping humans, it's AI versus other AI. Um, the tendency for things to happen historically has been to escalate on, on both sides. And typically the result is in a, in a crisis and everything becomes compounded at that point because of the level of acceleration of AI. It's just um, knowing how to achieve a certain level of deterrence is what we will need in the future um, because of the rapid acceleration of AI and the problems that humans can't compete with things that could have scaled very subtly are like rapidly scaling at this point. So if you have one human versus one human, it's like, Oh, it's going to take a while. <laughs> like, Oh, they'll, they'll, they'll hash it out. But if you have, you know, one, one cyber attack versus another, it will escalate probably simultaneously. And the, the interesting point that when we're trying to approach these problems from a standpoint of sincere, um, like complication, you know, there's like a magnitude of safety that you have to be aware of and conscious because there are human lives at hand. And in the previous experience, something that's almost relative to like strategic intelligence or how to, you know, prevent tragedy from occurring before it happens. Like if you look at the nuclear war um, and the bombs that were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki and the explosion of nuclear weapons, um, we didn't really have the luxury of pre preventing that from happening. We didn't know that it would be a total irreversible problem. Um, AI, for instance, versus AI, we have, we're in a position where we could prevent catastrophic harm to our civilization by being careful about it in advance and looking at these cyber attacks um, or using AI to um, identify different AI. And when you're just teaming up machine versus machine, <laughs> like in the movies you know, I think that these problems, um, are something that we're really bringing to light. And, um, and I think that we could definitely use it for good, but things can really turn, um, you know, into a different space when we're dealing with such rapid learning and, and rapid acceleration. I have, I have a little bit of skepticism that we've got a stellar track record on, you know, making sure that uh, technology isn't uh, applied to uh, nefarious or, or unproductive usages. So, uh, in fact, for that matter, a lot of the initial investment in a lot of breakthrough technologies were kind of on the margins of of uh, legality. And uh, mm -hmm. that's kind of human nature. So final question for you. Yeah. What's your best guess on how long it will be until ChatGPT wins a Pulitzer Prize for literature? Oh my gosh. I honestly think... Or at least co-authors. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll hedge it a little bit. So let's say, okay, honestly, okay, I think that it already has. Or so. forms of AI already has. So it's already co-authored. Well, and this is the whole point with regulation is that you don't have to disclose anything. You could be a world-renowned author and you don't have to disclose who your helpers are. You really don't. Um, at this point, you can say, yeah, I Google a lot of information. But at the other time, you know, on the other scale of things, you don't have to disclose that you used AI. And, well, and uh, I suppose no one really discloses the fact they did Google searches to, you know, <laughs> fact check things or looked up stuff on Wikipedia. So it yeah, I mean, begs a good yeah. question. So maybe you're exactly right. In fact... I suspect that the we've already seen it at least in articles, and it uh, it would be interesting to know when it is the primary author of of a paper. There's probably some date out there that you know we already have uh, movies that are you know AI generated. So yeah, be interesting to see when a movie wins the Academy Award or when a when a book gets a big prize that's 
been generated by AI. That'll that'll be a watershed moment. Well, <laughs> Lori, thank you so much for joining us today and giving us some tools to think about how AI intersects with creators. And thank you all for joining us today for W3B Talks. Uh, Middle Mosaic will be launching this fall, so watch out for that. And in the meantime, you can see some of Lori's beautiful artwork at www.lauriewolford.art. And you can find out more information about this and many other topics at blockchainresearchinstitute.org. You may also subscribe to our newsletter. I'm your host, Doug Heinzman, and we hope that you will join us for our next episode of W3B Talks.